Hello there, you incredibly beautiful, wonderful, amazing person. So excited to have you listening to the show today or watching if you are on the YouTube channel. As always, guys, what an incredibly packed episode that we have to bring to you today. Trying something a little bit different here. We are bringing back a lawyer for the first time ever. We're bringing back Mr. Tony Spagnolo for you. Any of you who've been listening to the episode for over a year, you'll remember Tony came and joined us right at the beginning of the pandemic and helped us understand what types of things that people should be looking for or looking out for. And that was a really specific episode towards the COVID situation. Now that we're hopefully working our way through that, we had Tony come back on and talk about a whole bunch of items that have come up not only in the last year or two, but just generally come up all the time. Uh, a little bit about co-signers and how not to lose your home if you're adding one. Things about family members and transfer tax exemptions, title searches, what happens uh, when it comes to virtual signings and in-person signings and what might happen. Key things to look out for if you are buying with other people and so much more. Tony, of course, is a wealth of information. He's come today to share a lot about what he anticipates to come down the pipe in the future and just so much more. So you're going to need to listen to this episode. I don't care who you are. If you are interested in real estate, buying real estate, selling real estate, investing real estate, anything to do with that, you need to be listening to Mr. Tony. Um, of course, he's got so much information. If you want to listen or learn a little bit more about Tony, make sure to reach out and find him online, Tony Spagnola, or just search up real estate lawyers in BC. Aside from that, guys, this episode was always just presented to you by myself, Alex McFadden. My partner is Dean Lawton and Derek Williamson of Thrive Mortgage Co. Our primary focus is helping you create wealth in real estate. And whether that's a first-time buyer just figuring out how to do it right or a first-time investor figuring out how the heck do I access this equity properly because it's a lot more than just refinancing. There's a lot more to know. We're the team that wants to look out for you. And if you're interested in working with us and, and uh, interviewing to work together, make sure to go to our website, thrivemortgage.ca, fill out the form, or find us on Instagram. We're really all over there all the time. We'd love to hear from you. So anyways, without further ado, make sure to leave a review if you love the show. Enjoy this episode, and we'll see you on the other side. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. For all of our listeners of the show, Tony came on uh, during the pandemic, uh, right in the middle of the beginning of it, you know, March of 2020, helped us to understand a lot of the legal ramifications of what was going on with brand new things at the time, like virtual signings and what people were going to do if they had to uh, delay closings and, and or miss closings and what that would look like. And we're in a different dimension now, absolutely different world. Not only is the world opening back up, thankfully, but you know uh, the market has not tanked, obviously. And those people that did not collapse their deals are very happy at this moment right now. So uh, we definitely have a lot of questions that have been coming up since then uh, in relation to that, in relation to signings. But just generally speaking, we thought it would be a good opportunity to get you, uh, Tony, with all of your experience to come and help us understand a lot more about just basic day-to-day -day questions and considerations and then maybe a little bit of foresight into what we should be looking for which we'll talk about in the uh later in the podcast so um derek why don't you lead us off yeah i mean like you said you know the market's been absolutely crazy and it's funny you know we were chatting about this earlier but the market gets so busy that people can barely keep up with their day-to-day -day, yet timelines get shorter things get rushed corners get you know, taken. 
Um, and we just want to make sure that, you know, real estate agents, clients, borrowers, buyers uh, have a good understanding on some of these items that could really cause issues uh, if you don't watch out for them. So why don't we just kick it off right away with co-signers. This is something that we see very, very common nowadays. It's hard as hell to qualify for a mortgage on your own, depending on your situation. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we need to add mom, dad, grandpa, brother to the file to allow you to qualify for that purchase, uh, or maybe it's a refinance. Whatever the situation might be, um, if it's a purchase and the bank requires that co-signer, let's go with mom, they might require mom to go on title, super common nowadays. Um, and what we see a lot of is as much as we might let the real estate agent know, maybe they forget to add mom to the contract during your subject period, right? So mortgage is approved, you remove subjects, everything is perfect. Uh, you walk into Tony's office to start signing documents and we realize that mom is not on the contract. Uh, so what does that open up uh, from your lens, Tony? Uh, what issues could we see there? It does come up uh, more often than it should. Uh, and so far we've been able to avoid the issue, but here's what could happen. Uh, I'll say a year and a half, two years ago, the government was concerned about shadow flipping and uh, people assigning contracts and making hidden profits and, and that kind of stuff. So they, uh, there was a clause inserted into the standard form uh, contract to purchase and sale that's used by the, by the Real Estate Association. I think it's clause 21 or 21A. And what it says is that um, there is no assignment allowed without the permission of the vendor. And if there is a profit, that profit goes to the vendor. Well, that, that seems fine, no assignments allowed, but when you're adding a family member to title for financing purposes or for any other reason, that if that person is not on the contract, that is an assignment. So let's just take the standard kind of typical case. The, the, the husband and wife are buying the property. They find out that they need to add the parents as, as a 1% owner. Uh, it can be as little as 1%. Uh, well, if they're not on that original contract, that is an assignment. And we need to call the seller's lawyer and get their permission for that assignment. And most times it's been granted. In fact, every time in our office, but we've heard of situations where the seller may have a backup offer, which is worth more. It's a higher sale price than our clients may be willing to pay. It's in their interest to collapse that deal. So they, we may come across a situation and there have been situations in other firms that we've heard of where the seller says, no, sorry, I don't, I don't want you to amend this contract. I don't want this assignment to take place. Uh, we need you to close. And if not, you can have your deposit back, but we're going to take the other offer. We don't want to sell here. So what we've been advising realtors since this clause came in is to put a simple little um, paragraph in the original contract to purchase and sale saying, uh, in the event the parents are required or an immediate family member is required to go on title for financing purposes, that immediate family member can be so added, uh, notwithstanding Clause 21A, something like that. So it allows this to happen uh, without it occurring. Now, the seller's realtor may not want that in there with the backup offer. The buyer's realtor does want that in there. Uh, and in a perfect world, we all have lots of time to deal with this situation in advance. But Derek, as you started off by saying, there's just no time on files anymore. The expectations are out of control. It's really important from our side of things too, because you know a lot of times you're adding a mom or a dad and it's a rush and you got three days left in your subject period, right? Like you're just trying to get this deal done. Um, and sometimes, you know, the conversation doesn't come up that mom doesn't want to be on title. 
Like she really, really adamantly doesn't want to be on title, right? But the bank requires that. So as you're going through that process, it's super important to make sure that everyone's aware of the requirements from the bank because, you know, we've had situations where, you know, we explain it, you put it in writing, but maybe it's just so rushed and panicked that they don't take the time to read it or really hear what you're saying. And, you know, you've got these last minute calls when they're sitting at Tony's office and, and mom's upset that she has to go on title. So just make sure you're aware of what that looks like when you're adding co-signers because, a lot of times if you're using that co-signer's income, which is the main reason that you use a co-signer, they're going to want them on title. You know, since this clause was added, it's, it's become a real problem. So this is something that needs to be dealt with early, like every other issue if possible. I got one more really quick question on this co-signer piece. This comes up all the time. Everyone wants to remove the co-signer at some point. What does that look like from like from the finance side? We know how that works. You just requalify and remove mom. From your end, Tony, what is the cost and the time frame to have that to have mom removed from title? It is a purchase. So we are registering the transfer in the land title office. We are registering a property transfer tax form or we're, uh, we're preparing all the regular documents. There's no money changing hands, there's no statement of adjustments, there's no tax adjustments. So it's, it's like a, a three-quarter purchase. So if a purchase costs $1,300, $1,400, this is going to cost around $1,000. Uh, in terms of timing, that really just depends on how busy everyone is, right? If you called us the middle of January, we could do it in a couple of days. If you call us the last week of a month, like June, July, August, when it's so crazy, we couldn't even uh, look at it. So it, it's not a complicated thing at all, but it is it does cost money to be done. Uh, documents do need to be filed in the land title office. Yeah, so thanks, Tony, for explaining that. And I think uh, the couple key points that I want to just touch on, obviously, is the title transfer, the fact that you're actually purchasing a property, uh, more or less. And But most importantly, that first key point that you made about the fact that uh, you, you want to have that clause as a buyer's agent in a contract to protect your buyers against a potentially a backup offer sliding in there and uh, taking over the property at the last minute, which I couldn't even imagine how devastating that would be for a buyer who's probably either a sold their property or been waiting forever to move in. And the next thing you know, they get advised, well, you can't uh, add this person because you're going to lose your transaction and then either collapse or lose their deposit. So thanks for sharing that. We probably just saved a whole lot of people, a lot of stress and a lot of money. Oh, good. We're done here. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> just like that. So. Yeah. So, so you just touched a little bit on, um, uh, basically, you know, family members and, and PTT. And I know that and actually, I think we'll, we'll get a little bit back to this as we get later in the episode, but you've got some potential news on tax planning strategies and the reason behind that. So we'll, we'll come back around that point a little bit here, but you know, Tony, one of the things that you often talk about is, is title searches. And I know you talk about this a lot with uh, real estate agents and, uh, people in the lending space. And, I think uh, you know just for the you know, maybe someone who's earlier in the process or uh, newer in the real estate industry or alternatively just a home buyer, a lot of people don't even know what that is. Like, what is a title search and what's the importance of it? Like, why should a homeowner even care about having a title search complete? Now, I've got some answers to this, but Tony, I'd love to hear from the guy who talks about it all day long. So maybe you could give us uh, Cole's notes on that. Basically, the title search will show if there are any charges on title that restricts the homeowner's use of the property. So what we're talking about are easements, covenants, rights of ways, building schemes, things like that. 
They remain on title forever. They remain on title after the buyer acquires the property. So I'm speaking to you from my home here in Burnaby and I have an easement on the back of my property. And on the north 16 feet of my property, I cannot put anything of a permanent nature. I cannot put anything, uh, no cement. I'm Italian, I gotta put cement, but I can't. Uh, so uh, that's something I need to know about before I remove my subjects. Cause I may wanna put a pool in the backyard. I may wanna put a tennis court back there. I may wanna put a, a sport court for the young kids, whatever it is. And that easement prohibits me from doing that. So now I bought my, my dream house and I can't do what I want with it. Let's say there's a building scheme on title and it says you have to have a house of a certain size, a certain shape, a certain type of roof. You have to have one red maple in the front. Well, if I ever want to build a house and I want to build a completely modern contemporary home with a flat roof, that building scheme may not me allow, may not allow me to do that. I may be buying a house. There's a right of way for BC Hydro to come on and, and fix the power lines and I can't I can't put any, you know, kind of big trees as a hedge over that portion of the property. So those are all things that are absolutely critical to the homeowner and the realtors have a duty to disclose that to their buyers. Their buyers need to know about that before subject removal, not after, because at that point it's too late. They can't come to our office and say, what's this easement? We can tell them, but if they don't like it, they still have to close the property because it's after subject removal. Same thing on a strata. Now, stratas, for the most part, they're standard. Every unit has them. There's nothing they can do about them. But there's things on stratas that may be of concern, shared easements, uh, shared covenants, uh, maintaining certain things around the property. So the buyers absolutely need to know about this before subject removal. Those documents are noted on the title search. That's a written record of the property. It has the legal description. It has a plan. It has all these charges on there. So that's my, uh, hopefully I kept that to about three minutes or less. I could go on all day about title searches and I have, and people get bored out of their minds. Uh, but it's absolutely critical for homeowners to review, the potential homeowners to review that before they remove their subjects. And I mean, your your average Joe or your average homeowner is probably not going to have a clue what that means when they're looking at that title search, right? So you actually own terra firma, if I'm correct, which I know a lot of real estate agents use religiously. Uh, and I believe that company is basically a title review uh, company. They'll You guys look over the title search and you outline the details of, of the easements and the right of ways. And uh, basically, you know, you guys stick up the red flag if there's anything that they should be aware of yeah yeah so the realtor can send over the title search uh and we will pull every single non-financial charge every easement every covenant every right away everything that's ever on there and we send that back to the realtor to give to their client along with our legal opinion as to what it says so i mean the, this has come up uh tony in situations uh actually recently where uh, we had an experience where there was a client purchasing a property on the island and as you know uh you know vancouver island and all the islands surrounding this have in many cases very unique uh lots and titles and designations and things of that nature and and I, without getting too technical uh you know a week before closing somehow uh the i believe through the lawyer uh the client and the uh professional that was working on the file this was not ours actually this is a third party conversation but was notified that there were i guess two two uh uh, lots on this title or two properties and, and in any case whatever the circumstance that happened this could have found, been found out immediately when uh the broker or whoever was working on the file up front had done a title search and had a look at that because this lender in this scenario 
would not work with this property type. So uh, for your for your point, I mean, obviously, one of the things that you're suggesting is like lifestyle and ability to build and and all these different types of things that could change the lot. But the other consideration is just straight up. Can I qualify to get a financing on a property of this nature? You, you mentioned that you recommend this on in all circumstances. But obviously, when it gets to your office, it's probably too late for a lot of people to do anything at that point. Do you have any situations that you, you've suggested in the last or seen maybe in the last six to 12 months where where maybe there was a horror story that was uh, diverted or someone was able to get away from the specific property based on looking up this title search? Typically, we don't know, uh, Alex, about it, you know if, if we get the title search in, we do the review, we send it to the realtor and the deal doesn't go firm, we, we don't know why. We don't know if the client didn't get financing or didn't like what was on title. But we have had clients actually close and then find out there's something wrong with their property. We had a client uh, buy a corner lot up at Westwood Plateau and they wanted to demolish the house and, and, and kind of change the house around so the driveway faced the other street. So they, they bought the lot, they hired an architect, they hired engineers, they did all the house plans, they did all that kind of stuff, spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and then submitted those plans to City Hall, and City Hall immediately rejected them because there was a covenant on title saying, no, that driveway had to face the other way, not the way that they wanted it to move. So all that money was wasted. Now, at the end of the day, they, they, they built a house, but it wasn't the one that they wanted. So there's just one example of that. We've had other clients, this easement in my backyard that I referred to, that's come up. We've had clients call and say, you know, why wasn't I told about this? What's, what's going on here? Uh, and they're, you know, they still, they still got the house and they still made money on that house. Time heals most wounds, I guess. Uh, but there have been stories like that. We had one actually just it came to light about two months ago where six years ago we acted for the buyer and we transferred the property to the buyer. All good. Turns out that adjacent to the property was a little sliver about five feet and that ought to have been transferred as well. Now the contract was written up with just, so there's two different legal descriptions, two different PIDs, two different parcel identifiers. The contract was written up for just one, so we did our job properly. The realtor failed to notice that other five feet. And had they ordered a subdivision plan, if they were part of Terra Firma six years ago, Terra Firma wasn't around six years ago, but if they ordered a subdivision plan and we showed that plan to the client, say, this is the property you're buying, the client would have said, well, what about this five feet? I'm, I should be buying this. So it could have been caught six years ago. We're trying to find out where that owner is, the original owner from six years ago, of that six feet and trying to get her and trying to convince her that she ought to have sold that six feet. And it's, you know, the insurers have been involved. Let's just put it that way. If the plan was ordered at that time, it would have been caught. So this does come up. Absolutely. Does it come up every day or every week? No, but does it come up every month or two? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Very interesting. So a lot of things that no one ever thinks about and no one ever cares about can make obviously a big difference. And it sounds like certainly in a situation where there's either renovations or building involved, it's an absolute no brainer. Um, you know, Tony, let's let's push forward here and kind of go back to the start of our conversation, our opening around 
uh, you know, COVID. So what happened during that timeline is is pretty much every business had to pivot, including the law business, uh, real estate world, etc. And there were a lot of different things that occurred and everything happened really, really quickly. And people were trying to figure out, you know, what's up, what's down and what's going on. Well, we're a year into it now, a year and a half into it, I should say. And uh, some things will never go back to the way they were. And one of the things we're wondering is around virtual signings, which in my opinion, I know you may have a different one, so I'd like to hear yours, but in my opinion, I think they're great and they should stay, speaking from someone who's done and used it multiple times. But I know you've got some some good points as to why there should be both options. Where are we at today? What is the likelihood that virtual signings will stay around and what are your feelings around it? Well, you're absolutely right in terms of businesses having to pivot. And uh, there's no doubt we are a better law firm than we were a year and a half ago because we've embraced technology so much. We thought we were techno tech smart in terms of technology and say that properly uh, but we're so much better now here we are i'm in my house you guys are in two different locations uh paul somewhere else we you know in the old days i'd come into your studio and we have to sit there and have a cup of coffee and, and chat there so there's no doubt there have been some improvements with covid one of those was these virtual signings as you referred to alex and uh with uh the emergency order that was passed and people not being able to travel and not wanting to leave their house because of covid We've been able now to meet people over Zoom and witness their signatures. There's a whole bunch of protocols that go with that. Nothing has changed yet. We're still allowed to use Zoom. The consensus is, it's just a guess, is that these will go away once COVID goes away. Now there's talk of a fourth wave and who knows when COVID will go away. And these, So for now, there's no change. But the reason why the government may want to get rid of Zoom appointments for the land title office purposes is that our land title system that title search we, we referred to earlier that shows the non-financial charges that's guaranteed by the government we have a torrent system the government guarantees what's on title so if there's fraud the government steps in and fixes it uh, zoom appointments are are high risk transactions you're not seeing the person in person you're not looking at their ID right in front of you and comparing it to their face. You're doing it over a screen. It's easier to get the fake ID past the lawyer or past the notary's eyes. And so because the government has to guarantee title, they're going to have some real concerns about uh, Zoom appointments going forward. And is that going to result in more fraud? What is the cost of that fraud? There was no issue before in terms of lawyers uh, or notaries meeting clients. There's you know, a lawyer in every corner, so to speak. We have 18 offices ourselves, uh, So I, I can see where Zoom is going to be something that's under consideration after this is um, over. But for now, going forward, there's no difference with Zoom. We can continue to meet clients. Like most firms, we do charge more for that because it is more work. Uh, the prep is more. The reporting is more. The registration is a little different. Uh, but for those clients that cannot come here, they have, they're overseas uh, or they're uh, stuck in a home or, excuse me, whatever it may be, we can continue to use Zoom for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, it's been very beneficial. We just had a client that uh, he was exposed to COVID, wasn't allowed to leave his house. This was four days before his completion date. So he just, you know, had to be able to make it work. So it's awesome that we have the ability. Now, from the client side, I understand that it's a it can be a bit of a headache as well as they're as much as they're not driving to your office. I believe they need to print out a pretty thick stack of paperwork. Is that really the only downside for the client? They need to find a printer, print it, and then spend some time on Zoom with you guys? And then scan it. 
and then yeah, scan print, it back. The printer's easy. I mean, I've got a little home printer here right beside me. I have no idea how to scan on that thing. But then I'm a 59-year-old technology illiterate. So, um, but yeah, the client just needs to be able to um, print and scan. Now, there is one, the, the biggest issue with Zoom appointments is having their identification verified. We can't just rely on their ID on the screen. So if they're a client, if they're, if they bought that, just use your example, the client four days before closing, they would have met the realtor and the realtor would have verified their ID. So we can use the realtor as our agent to verify their ID. We need someone to meet the client, look at their ID, confirm it's theirs, make a photocopy and complete this agency agreement that we have. So if it's a realtor, no problem, we can do that. If the client's overseas and has never been here or out of the country or out of Vancouver, I mean, if they're buying from Calgary or wherever, we need to find someone in Calgary um, who can verify their identification. It has to be someone with some kind of professional designation. I like to call it a license to lose a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, an engineer, uh, a realtor, um, you know, a chiropractor, a massage therapist, someone with some kind of professional designation has to verify their ID. So there's that little bit of a stumbling block at the beginning, but once that's over with, it's not that big a deal to the clients. Good to know. And so you brought up fraud and I've actually got an interesting story, a private lender that we do a lot of business with. I think this was about five years ago. He actually, they ended up funding a private mortgage. It was a second mortgage on a property in Vancouver. Uh, and this was an in-person legal signing that took place. Uh, and it turns out that these were the kids and they had taken their parents' IDs and they had taken out a $650,000 second mortgage on this property and they left the country, I believe, um, which is interesting, right? People don't really think about mortgage fraud and, and how it's actually out there. Like it seems so in depth and there's so many hoops to jump through, but like it absolutely can happen and it does happen. Um, can you speak a little bit to title insurance? Oh, absolutely. And mortgage fraud is, it, it's a one day conversation. I've got all kinds of stories. Some of them done by my family members. I shouldn't admit that, but, uh, <laughs> and, and we had one last week in our office where the husband showed up with a lady purporting to be his wife and it wasn't, it was his girlfriend, a friend or whatever. And thankfully our lawyer did a real close look at the ID and it wasn't her. So this does come up. Absolutely. And title insurance is, is critical in certain aspects. Now, if you're if you're getting a mortgage on your property, either in terms of a refi or a purchase, odds are your lender is going to insist on title insurance. It used to be that they cared about encroachments or easements or the ease over over the property. All they care about now is fraud. Uh, in my opinion, I may be wrong, and Stuart Title and FCT may disagree with that. But all they care about is mortgage fraud. Whether on the part of the borrowers or their kids, as you just said, it may be on the part of the lawyers or notaries. There's an awful lot of trust going on between lawyers in terms of uh, on a purchase. Uh, and sometimes that trust is breached. Lawyers and notaries have been known to take off with a whole bunch of money. Um, um, so title insurance is mandatory. It's around $250, give or take, for properties up to a million. After that, it's a sliding scale. It's just a cost of doing business. It's something every borrower is going to have to pay for. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of the real quick story about title insurance. Fraud, it can occur in so many different ways. I'm not being accurate in terms of your income or things like that, but uh, well, your kids, not your kids, Derek, but th those kids on that property. I mean, I'm not sure if that was the 
TD file on the west side of town. But same thing happened. It, it happens. It doesn't get publicized a lot because I think title insurers and us lawyers, we don't want the world to know how easy it is to commit something like that. And I shouldn't be saying that now that we're being recorded. I kind of remind myself that we're being recorded. I'm not used to that. Be honest. But it, it, yeah, it, it does happen. I mean, in the, well, I mean, I forget. I'll say sometime in the spring, uh, I remember this because I was quoted in the Vancouver Sun. It was a real big deal for me. I got my 15 minutes of fame. There is a deal where a property was sold by a fraudster. The, the, the homeowners lived, I think they were South African, lived in South Africa. Somehow the fraudster found out about this, got fake ID saying that they were those people. They got hold of the property manager, uh, got hold of a realtor, had the property listed, the property sold. They got the money. No one verified their ID. This is just, I'll say March, April. I really should look into it a bit further. So, and in that situation, here's what really is painful about that. Uh, a fraudster uh, gets fake ID. My wife and I sells this house. We're off in Europe for two months. We don't know what's going on. When we come back, if the buyers are not a party to the fraud, they get to keep the house. We just get a check for the value of the house. That's our torn system. That's what the government's so paranoid about with these Zoom appointments is are they going to be on the hook for things like that more often? So frauds, it's absolutely real. It's absolutely relevant. It's, uh, we talk about it in our office every couple of weeks. Every couple of weeks, I get an email from someone from overseas saying they've heard about us. We're a great firm. They want to send us 90% of the purchase price. So we've got the money. We're ready to go. And the moment I send a note back saying, yeah, great. Happy to work with you. Just so you know, if you ever want money back, it's going to take us 180 days to get it back to you. You'd never hear from them again. So it's, 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 it's real. Yeah. Wild to hear that those things actually happen. But uh, I think as, as Derek alluded to, I mean, there's a lot of confusion around, again, the insurance and the why and the how. In fact, like, again, I, I hear lawyers tell clients all the time, it's uh, a waste of money. It's a joke uh, all the time. Like my, Hey, I went to the lawyer's office and they just said like, this is, this is a, you know, a crock or whatever, one thing after another. I'm like, your lawyer just said that to you? Like, that's crazy. But I mean, that's a reality. I think at the end of the day is people just don't understand the ramifications of it. And that's why they say that. So um, moving forward here, uh, you know, Tony, I want to get back to what we talked about, uh, you know, kind of in the beginning around family members and what to look out for. A lot of our clients really, um, how should I put this, are creative when their finances. They really want to understand opportunities to build wealth. And one of the ways they do that is by buying with other people. Now, I don't think we'll go into the depths of everything you need to know about JV uh, partnerships, but maybe there's some advice that you can provide to someone who's going down that road, whether it's with, maybe it's with a spouse that they're buying an investment or a property with, and, and or maybe they're doing with this, this with a partner. Are there some ways that you can provide some feedback around what they should be looking out for? How do they protect themselves? with these types of scenarios and contracts, that's something that you can help us out with? I'm gonna talk about two different situations. With dealing with your spouse, that's family relations, that's family law, and uh, those principles will govern any breakup. So if it's a family asset, it'll be split, and you know a family lawyer will, will deal with all that stuff. But if you're buying with your brother, your sister, your brother-in-law, sister-in-law, or friends, or whoever it is, the, the basic advice is expect the worst. Expect that, that you're not gonna get along expect that the other side, the other couple is going to get divorced and you want them both in there. Expect that, not to sound all morbid, someone may pass. What happens then with insurance? Expect that someone's going to lose their job. 
what happens if they can't fulfill their obligations. Uh, just expect the worst in every situation. And it's basically, there's all kinds of different agreements that all deal with the same thing. It could be a shareholders agreement if your shareholders in the company. It could be a partnership agreement if your partners, or it could be a joint venture agreement if your joint ventures. But they all deal with the same things. How are we going to manage this business? The business may be just owning a rental property. And how are we going to deal with unforeseen and difficult circumstances? Death of a shareholder, death of a joint venture partner. Uh, if I buy a property with my brother and he were to pass, am I, do I now have his two kids as my partners or can I buy them out at fair market value? Or do we have to sell to a third party and do we split the proceeds? Uh, if I'm buying with my brother and his wife and they get divorced and it's a messy divorce, do I have to deal with his ex-wife, my ex-sister-in-law? Or does she get bought out or can I buy them both out? Uh, what if I lose my job and I can't make the mortgage payments, the rent isn't enough to cover it? Does my brother have to cover that shortfall? And if so, does he get a bigger piece of the equity? What if the initial contributions aren't the same? I put up 25,000, my brother puts up 50. Does he, get a, does he just get 25,000 more on sale or does he get two thirds? Cause you put 50 out of 75, all, all those different things. So. Um, these agreements can be quite complicated. They get expensive. A lot of people want to do them and will say, look, we're, we're not really experts on this. We'll refer you to someone, but just so you know, here's what you're looking at in terms of costs. It's going to be several hours worth of work. You're, you're going to have some unpleasant conversations. Now it's up to you if you want to do it or not. We certainly recommend it. Uh, I would not do a deal. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because I've got some friends who've done handshake deals. Um, but I would certainly recommend it. Don't do as I do. Do as I say, for God's sakes. Uh, I would certainly recommend it on every file. Uh, Tony, I got a, a one follow-up question on that is, um, does it make a difference if and when those all applicants are on title or not on title? Is there any difference to the contract that they're writing in that sense or any protection for someone who's not on the title of the contract? They should all be on title in the contract and they should all go on title. Because if you don't, let's go back to my brother and I, let's just say that the property is in his name. I don't want my name being public for whatever reason. Well, now the property is just in his name. He can go and put another mortgage on there tomorrow without my knowledge, without my consent, without my permission. Uh, he could sell the property without my knowledge, permission, consent. If I find out, I can take, step, take steps to prevent it. Uh, but you absolutely want to be on title uh, just so that nothing happens to that property without my knowledge and consent. Hmm, that's and that, good. I guess, applies in the spousal. That, that would apply in the spousal situation. I mean, my house in Burnaby, uh, my wife is the sole owner. If I take off on a golf trip for a couple weeks and come back and see it sold, she never had to get my permission. So there's nothing. Yeah, too loud. Yeah. Well, she's not home. And uh, hopefully, well, hopefully she never watches the podcast. <laughs> so we're okay. Oh, come on. We're world famous now. So, um, okay. So, well, no, hopefully, you know, everyone, every, I want everyone to watch this except my wife or people that know my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, these are like anything to do with joint venture conversations are really independent. And, and we know that. And we've had these experiences. They can, they can get expensive depending on the, the level of complexity and detail and how much counseling that each party needs on it. I mean, we always recommend that both parties get their own independent. Uh, legal advice, which I imagine you would agree with, right, Tony? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so definitely uh, go dig deeper uh, on that. Uh, speak to your lawyer um, and uh, maybe someone who has experience in uh, these types of situations when you are making a decision to do a joint venture partnership. So uh, moving forward, Derek actually brought up a good point at the beginning of the show around uh, new developments and, and <laughs> you had a good answer. And so we're actually okay with that. But uh, Derek, why don't you take it away from there? Yeah, so new development properties, you're buying from a developer, brand new, you're paying GST. Uh, a lot of times we see these contracts drawn up and the clients, you know, they got a $15,000 decorating allowance or or there's a credit or a cashback of some level. <clears throat> and it's hard for us to figure out what that end purchase price is. We, we know what the bank is going to accept, but how the money all kind of maps out, we typically only get to see that once it's in the lawyer's hands because you know your office, Tony, is an example. You have to communicate with the developers, the sellers, lawyer, and it's really up to them how they calculate those credits and decorating allowances and, and cashback promotions, right? I mean, it's difficult for us to figure, figure it out as well. Uh, it's one of the challenges of doing new construction and it, it literally depends on who the lawyer is for the developer. It seems that there's a few lawyers who have one opinion uh, from the GST office and the PTT office and another group of lawyers who have another opinion and they're both relying on these opinions. You, you think maybe there was a different fact pattern submitted to the GST office, I don't know. Uh, but it, it just does depend on the developer's lawyer and how they want it set up. So uh, we may know in it, uh, um, just by looking at the contract and finding out who the developer's lawyer is, which way they will go with that. Uh, but until we call them and confirm that they haven't changed their mind, we don't know for sure how it's going to go either. So it's just a mess. It, it really is. And for us, I mean, you know, a client, they think they know what their down payment is and they think they know what their closing costs are and they think they're getting a check for 15000 back. So we do our best to break it down as closely as we can, but we also try to get the contract to the lawyer as quickly as we can, even if it's, you know, three months before completion so that we can start to get a gauge on that. You know, your office can start working on it and we can give the client a more specific down payment figure because there's nothing worse than the lawyer calling two days before completion and telling them that they need to bring in an extra, you know, $20,000 that they didn't expect uh, to have to come up with. So it's an ongoing challenge for pre-sales for sure. I think the best thing you can do is just plan in advance if possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a conversation we could probably go down a, a long winding road on because I mean, uh, half the time the the the, uh, the lender doesn't know. And I've seen many circumstances where the lender internally is arguing about who pays what and who doesn't. We go back to the developer, they don't really know, the client's frustrated. And uh, it's, it's, it's actually a big question, a big challenge. Is there anyone that, like, like that actually governs the way this works, Tony? Or is this just like almost a free for all? This one consistently blows my mind and you almost have to get a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth opinion from a team member internally before even talking to anyone else. Like, why is it like that? Do you have any idea? I think it's just because there's two different opinions granted by by the GST office or some a federal office dealing with how these things are to be governed. Uh, you know, the question is, does the 15 grand decalon cut, does it come off the price? And, and if so, is, is there GST and PTT payable on it? And they've got different opinions. And it would be great if someone like the Urban Development Institute, on behalf of all developers, sought that opinion. Um, but they haven't, and they probably have bigger fish to fry. And, uh, you know, the, the world's, the developers are doing just fine and they don't have an incentive to try and 
and all be consistent on this. You know, Polygon's doing their thing and they're doing very well and Adira's doing their thing and Bose is doing their thing and, and everyone's, you know, because we're making them all, making all the deals close, it's just, it's just a mess that uh, no one really has a big interest in solving. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, moving forward, uh, Tony, um, kind of looking towards the future. And, and actually, before we even get there, uh, you know, this is a conversation that we have with every single client, every single client, every single time. In fact, we have this conversation with real estate agents around uh, notary versus lawyer. And I want to preface this for any notaries listening is that we actually we have a couple of notaries that we really appreciate. They do great work. Uh, and uh, very happy with their support and services. But, you know, by and large, our team at, at Thrive uh, relies heavily on, on the partnership of uh, lawyers and teams like yours. Uh, kind of where we're at today, just based on the fact that, again, everybody is at this point looking to save money every uh, which way, whether it's lawyers, notaries, or otherwise. You know, there, are there any things that, you know, someone listening to this real estate or not in real estate needs to know as to why they should be looking at working with your office uh, or a lawyer's office as an alternative to a notary's office? And there's a lot of very good notaries out there and a lot of very bad notaries out there. And there's a lot of very good lawyers out there and a lot of very bad lawyers out there. The question I've always, I've always reframed this question. I think I sound like a politician. It's not, <clears throat> it's not lawyer versus notary. It's the lawyer you're thinking of using versus the notary you're thinking of using. Uh, and in a lot of deals, they're smooth, they're easy, no problem, and a good notary can get them done. A bad notary can't, nor can a bad lawyer. They're, they'll just, they're, they're not very good. They don't have systems, they don't have staff, they don't have technology. But the good lawyer, good notary on a lot of deals are, are, are both viable options. I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss the good notaries out there. But we were talking earlier about joint venture agreements. We are talking earlier about fraud. Uh, we're, we haven't spoken, but there are situations where something comes up before closing that even a good notary just can't handle. Notaries are very good, but they're not lawyers. Every lawyer is a notary. No notaries are lawyers. Uh, and so um, we had one the other day where on the morning of close, the developer calls our client says your ac unit's leaking we got some damage to the suite we held off on closing now we got to work through that and negotiate some kind of holdback things like that can a notary do that i don't think so now there's some there's some debate about that but again it's not notary lawyer it's just make sure that the person you're using has the experience has the staff has the support behind them to get your deal done and can deal with things if they go wrong there's oftentimes we're dealing with a law firm it's one lawyer in the office and they're away in court fighting a, an impaired driving charge and there's no one there to sign the trust check are you kidding me we need the money we got to close this deal mm. so that's no one should have used that law firm for the conveyance use them for your impaired driving that's fine so find someone yeah. who who has the team has the experience all that kind of stuff listen to the recommendations of your realtor of your broker uh, don't go on Google or Yelp or whatever and look for all that stuff. Find people that, that have that experience who've been around a while. So that, that, I tend to reframe the question that way. And you get what you pay for, right? Like it's, it's so funny. A lot of people, you're spending $700,000 on a townhouse now and you're trying to save 200 bucks on your, on your legal costs at the end of the day. And it just turns into a nightmare, right? Like that can be the most stressful part of the entire transaction. Everything can go seamless. But your last three days with that lawyer notary because you found the $900 online, you know, 
lawyer working out of their house. It's it's just not worth it at all. We tend to quote lawyers and lawyers tend to quote in a couple different ways. And some, you know, what do you charge? Well, I charge a thousand bucks. I'm making that number up. But then that's just my fees. Now I have land title disbursements and couriers and postage and fax and and uh, registration and this and all the other stuff. And it comes to fifteen hundred. Other lawyers and lawyers just say we charge fifteen hundred all in. So the thousand seems a lot cheaper than the fifteen hundred. And I'm making both those numbers up. But at the end of the day, we're all pretty close. And if someone's saying they're going to charge 900 bucks, odds are they're not including everything. And I will send them all my business at 900 bucks and I'll charge the client just a little premium just to make sure they're doing their job properly. They can have, there's no way they're doing it for that kind of money. So just be careful that everyone's quoting the all in number. Good to know. No, that's huge. I mean, uh, looking forward here, uh, Tony, I guess in, in, in uh, ending the conversation where we started the conversation, this is a deep topic. So I don't know that we want to go as deep as we were earlier on this one here, but looking into the end of the year and then next year with COVID again, kind of going back into that, all the tax relief that we've uh, had to find a way to pay for and are going to have to find a way to pay for for the coming years. It sounds like there could be some changes in terms of taxations. Um, do you want to give us just a snippet, maybe just a, a teaser into what we could be seeing and who should be talking to you? The government's spending an awful lot of money with uh, with relief for COVID, and that money's got to be paid at some point. So where are they going to get it from? They're going to find new taxes, they're going to raise taxes, or they're going to cut back services. Uh, I think those are the only three ways the government can, apart from just printing money, I guess, which is inflation. So in terms of uh, new taxes, there's been talk about a tax on principal residences of homes. Uh, a lot of people will dismiss that as a political suicide, but there's some pretty good rumors. A stronger rumor is that they will change the capital gains rules so that the 100% of the gain will be taxable or 75% versus the current 50. So you want to talk to uh, your accountant if you have one, uh, a lawyer, if you have a tax lawyer, if you have one. Uh, there's ways around, there's ways to rearrange your affairs so that it, it may help in the future. It's basically an insurance policy. I won't get into all those now, but... Um, you know, happy to discuss and happy to do a further podcast on that. But we have helped some clients move their assets around to hopefully minimize any potential taxes in the future. I love that. And I think you're right. We do definitely need to set up a second episode, uh, Tony, when you're back from your golf trip <laughs> to talk about uh, what that looks like. I think there's some huge ramifications for, again, home buyers, investors, business owners, and, and that there's a wide audience of people that need to know about what's coming up there. We'll definitely set something up there. Derek, any, any uh, closing thoughts on any, any of that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, these, these, uh, this primary residence tax thing has been lingering for so long. And, you know, if it was to be implemented, you can only imagine that with all the money that, you know, our country's pushed out and, and they're going to try to recoup it in some level, right? Uh, I can only imagine that these taxes are going to take place. It's probably going to be somewhere in the near future. So planning is important, right? Yeah, really good feedback, Tony. Tony, I mean, one of the things that we, we consistently think about in our own business and, and not to get off track here uh, to the listeners, I think it's going to be important is what you mentioned about having a, a support group and a team uh, around you uh, who can help you. You know, you have multiple offices and and uh, team members in there. Not just that, but the ability to pivot and continue to uh, move forward. We've worked personally with you, Tony, for the better part of about six or seven years at this point right now. And, and the one thing that we've noticed is not that things are perfect all the time, but that you guys are consistently looking for opportunities to improve 
improve and uh, readily available. And that's it's a big part of how we operate and run our businesses is not to be perfect at all times, but to continuously improve. So we appreciate that. And if you're out there listening to this uh, episode and, and you're in the real estate space, definitely reach out to Tony and find out more about Terra Firma, uh, you know, or, or reach out to us and we'll connect you with Tony's team in relation to that. And, uh, and, and Tony, just, you know, thanks so much for coming on and always being uh, willing to share so much uh, information, education. We really appreciate the value that you consistently bring. Well, you know, thank you both guys. Thanks for the support all these years. It's been fun. You know, we've done a lot of deals together, a lot of stories, and uh, I look forward to many more. It's, it's been a good ride. Let's keep it going. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thank you, Tony.